Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. As we know, the children's Tylenol, the chewable, have not been implicated yet. Exactly what is going on right now, they're just assuming that it could be the cyanide-laced capsule also. The phone has been ringing off the hook at Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center in Chicago. It's the regional poison control center for the entire Chicago area. Poison specialist Lane Olaf. Oh, we've been receiving calls uh, about once every 15 seconds. At Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's, we only have three poison lines, and they're lit up constantly ever since yesterday morning. Right now, they're telling people which lots of Tylenol are known to have contaminated capsules and checking to see if callers have displayed any symptoms of cyanide poisoning. If uh, they have that, tell them to go in the emergency room. If they don't have that and they took it yesterday, we just tell them, you're, you're probably going to have no problem with it. Just hold on to the bottles. Don't take any Tylenol extra strength for the time being until you hear otherwise. Most of what's going on here is informational. Officials here say right. if anyone has taken a cyanide-laced Tylenol capsule, well, they, they probably wouldn't it. be able to make it to they the phone to call. They used to. I'm Jeff Locke, CNN, at Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center in Chicago. Hello and welcome to episode 204 of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media, Evergreen Podcasts, as well as Killer Podcast production. And this week, I am very, very lucky to be joined by two investigative journalists from the Chicago Tribune, who just so happen to be the hosts of a an extremely popular podcast about one of the most interesting true crime cases, probably, in uh, the United States of America. And that would be the Chicago Tylenol murders. And I would like to welcome reporter Stacy St. Clair and Christy Gutowski to Who Killed. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks Thank for you. having us. So I have to ask, you know, when you listen to the trailer of your podcast... You talk about this case looming over you for decades, and I just wanted to know a little bit about uh, how that particular case, you know, stuck with you. I mean, it clearly is a huge case nationally, but being there on the ground, how did you guys get involved? Stacy and I got our uh, start uh, in journalism working for a suburban paper uh, in suburban Chicago, the Daily Herald, and um, it was in... Uh, Herald City that many of the victims lived and died. So uh, we um, were too young to be reporters in 1982. I was 13 years old, so I remember it and remember the fear it caused at Halloween, but uh, didn't get into um, out of college and and, uh, become reporters until the 90s. And um, one of my, I think it was my first Metro beat was a courts reporter in DuPage County. And many of the investigators from Task Force 2 were at the uh, twilight, the end of their career, and they got basically second jobs as investigators in the state's attorney's office. So I got to know some of these guys uh, early in my career, and uh, the case just haunted them, stuck with them, um, that they were never able to solve it. And uh, then Stacy and I, just through our uh, reporting paths, started covering developments, you know, anniversary pieces, uh, things like that. And um, that's that's how we got into it professionally. 
Yeah, it's very interesting. I I know that like with the anniversaries and stuff like that, definitely brings new blood to the um to the case and new eyes, and I think that's important. And uh, as far as Stacy, your involvement. Yeah. So like Christy, I began reporting in the suburbs and there have been so many twists and turns in this case and so many either false starts or, or reboots that if you were if you are a reporter in the Chicago area, this story has crossed your desk at some point. And, you know, I'm like Christy, I'm no exception uh, to that. You know, in 2012, they reached out you know, to the Unabomber for DNA, right? And and it was another way people got sucked in. And they, they raided a suspect's home in 2009. And so, you know, the, the, it just has been a constant. Every couple of years, something pops up. It is definitely one of those cases where when you see a name like Ted Kaczynski uh, pop up in there, it's, uh, you know, the Unabomber connected connection is interesting, I, I believe, obviously, um, that DNA did not match. Uh, but it is still an interesting aspect and kind of shows a little bit of thinking outside the box, I guess. And maybe a little bit of a sign of desperation too. Yeah. Well, it's more of a defensive move by investigators because their theory was, Hey, we have a suspect in this case. And if we charge him, we want to block any defense attorney from saying, did you look at the Unabomber? You got a known domestic terrorist right in your backyard. Did you look at him? And hopefully this is for them. This is their chance to say, yes, we did look at him. Um, we did hear a very funny story. They did not actually officially get his DNA. Uh, he, he fought it. And then one day randomly in the mail, Ted Kaczynski, someone purporting to send Ted Kaczynski's email or um, DNA from a laboratory showed up and they have every reason to believe it is his DNA and they did test it, but they do not have um, an official sort of chain of custody of his, his DNA, which, you know, if it came down to it, I think they, they could fight, but they. Yeah. Ted they, isn't one of those people that's really going to give up on that. I think he's going to fight that one to the tooth and nail just uh, from his, uh, musings i guess we'll call them well he had an interesting connection right to the chicago area because he grew up here and mm -hmm. he actually uh, allegedly one of his typewriters was bought in dupage county um not far from where uh one of the victims died so there like stacy said it was definitely a defensive move to rule him out but um given those those similarities and and um you know, uh, that he had to the area, they had to do it, right? And yeah. when they when they sought his DNA, it was, I had just started at the Chicago Tribune. I got hired at the Tribune in October of 2010, and the story broke not too long after that. And um, my job was to knock on the door of uh, the some of the victim's family, uh, you know, surviving family members. And uh, I'll just never forget that assignment. It was shortly uh, before uh, three of the victims were connected by family, Stanley and Adam Janice and Stanley's new bride, Terry. And um, I had to get reaction from uh, Stanley and Adam's mother. And she died shortly thereafter. And I just remember uh, she spoke Polish um, and some English. And I just remember 
interviewing her and uh, the heartbreak in her voice and pretty much lost hope and, uh, you know, have been living with this for so many years, having lost uh, two of her sons. So and that one stays with me. As a true crime podcaster, you know, we all kind of um, take a little bit of flack for uh, sometimes dramatizing things or making things not so much about the victims. And I try my best to, to focus on the victims. And as a reporter, what is your approach? And this goes to both of you when you do speak with a victim's family, because I've done it and it's very difficult. And I uh, just was wondering what your guys' um, secret sauce was. We like to say that, you know, Christy and I will hound police departments and we'll hound prosecutors and we'll hound government agencies, but we don't hound victims. And in this case, we had multiple victims and every single one of them was at a different point in their lives, in their grieving process, in their trauma. And so you had seven very different ways of, of having to handle the families. And our decision very early on was that we were going to meet them where they were at. Um, if, if they just wanted to talk off the record, we would listen. If they wanted to record and have, in, in, in the instance of Joe Janis, who lost two of his brothers and his sister-in-law, if he wanted to have his daughter next to him, the entire time, well then by all means. So we we let them have some control over what was gonna make them most comfortable and what they thought would do the most good for both the case and their loved one's memory. That's very respectful. What about you, Christy? I agree with what Stacy said. And Bill, we uh, we do feel your show honors victims and uh, that's why we're you know so proud to be here with you. I feel that in this case, you know, you approach everybody, every story's different, and you think 40 years, you know, time heals all wounds. They say, no, we found out very quickly that the pain that these folks suffer, their loss, is as raw as, as if it happened yesterday. So, you know, our approach is to no harm and leave people better than how you found them. Uh, and I think about how I'd want to be treated if it was my mother or my sister. So uh, we approached people first with letters. We thought, I always think a handwritten letter, uh, and Stacy does as well, is the most humane way to approach somebody in this situation rather than just a cold call. And there were some, uh, such as the parents of uh, 12-year-old Mary Kellerman, who lost their only child, who um, have, uh, haven't spoken in, in decades to the to the media and um, had moved out of state and really um, had been uh, bruised and battered by the media and just how much attention this got, uh, you know, all over the years. So they really uh, wanted nothing to do with uh, with the 40th anniversary media coverage. And we, we respected them. And in those situations, uh, we sought out best friends and, um, uh, you know, co-workers, and we were upfront, for example, with the Kellermans that we um, had reached um, a childhood, uh, a sixth grade teacher and a childhood best friend. And, uh, you know, I don't know that we got their blessings, but they said they wouldn't stand in our way. And uh, we tried to keep them um, 
abreast of every development and, and let them know that we truly were just trying to, to show uh, that a life was stolen here and it still matters. And I hope that we um, were successful in, in our mission of, of uh, honoring the victims without traumatizing their family and friends um, in our coverage. Well, I think that's very important to hear and for everybody that's out there that, you know, thinks that we don't take this stuff seriously. It's, you know, it's not true. It's uh, we try to handle things with kid gloves and make sure that at least in my situation where I've talked to victims, uh, family members, it's, you know, let them say what they need to say and don't be a voice for them. Let them talk and let them say their piece because when it boils down to it, nobody knows what they're going through other than them. And it's so hard to, I can't fathom cause it haven't been there, but I just trying to explain the way that you feel on the inside to somebody is hard enough. I can't imagine ex- explaining to somebody what it was like to lose a family member or a sibling and that would just be extremely challenging. I know that I've spoken with the with Libby German from Delphi, and uh, you know she her sister was killed in five plus years ago, and you know they're still looking for her killer, and it's it's tra- it's just tragic. And mm-hmm. with you guys being in a major city, murders happen unfortunately a lot in. Chicago, and that is nothing to say one way or the other. It's a major metropolitan city. But when you get a case like this and you kind of get the chance to look back on something, this had to have been a, a pretty interesting assignment. I, I mean, is, was this something that you brought to your editor and said, we'd like to do this, or was this something brought to you? Um, it was something brought to us because our editors knew that um, we had experience in the, in the communities where, where these deaths occurred, that we had dabbled uh, on and off in covering the case, and that this is sort of our background, um, you know, dealing with with police and prosecutors and, and grieving families. So it's sort of, and plus we're, we're good friends, right? So if you're going to spend, you know, 10 months in the trenches with somebody nonstop, it, be, it better be someone you can get along with or <laughs> it, can get, it can get difficult real quick, right? Oh, yeah. And we had just came off covering the Kyle Rittenhouse trial oh. in Kenosha, which was just a, a media frenzy. And I think we both really were looking for something different and something um that appealed to, to me, and I know it did Stacy was this was a story that um, they were going to give us time and resources. So we traveled to seven states. We interviewed more than 150 people. We were able through FOIA, uh, you know, public records requests, which uh, sometimes aren't cheap, to obtain tens of thousands of pages of documents. And uh, that was as a reporter to, you know, we all know that's great to get time to really give a story like this, uh, the, the time and resources it deserves. It's pretty much the exact reason why I believe that podcasting is a great way to tell a story like this, because it really does give you a really large landing strip as far as being able to go tell the story piece by piece, 
really hit the streets, talk to people, knock on doors. What was what what was the most interesting thing uh, when you got started uh, that was a challenge to you? I think um, for for me, one of the challenges was trying to find um, all these people who were involved in the case forty years ago. Trying to find them today, um, I used to joke to Christy like, try you know we have this impossible task of trying to find an Irish cop from Chicago 40 years ago. Like, that's no easy task. We found them all in Florida. Don't worry. We, we found all of them. Um, <laughs> but I think that was, I mean, that really, you know, Christy will probably have a different answer than me. For me, that was one of the hardest parts of the, the detective. It was the most fun, right? Like digging into obituaries to try to figure out where people are and who their family members are and, do we have the right person? And, you know, going through Facebook pages, trying to, to figure out. So I think, um, I think that was one of the most challenging, but also one of the most fun. It was like a little bit like a scavenger hunt, actually. Bill, we didn't know when we started that this was an active police investigation. We thought we were just getting, you know, close to a year to work on a cold case for the 40th anniversary. So... Surprise. Yeah. Surprise. <laughs> so, nice surprise. I think, I think it was the second or third week, perhaps, that um, I had reached an old uh, retired Elmhurst detective who Elmhurst is one of the suburbs outside of Chicago where uh, one of the victims lived. And uh, I had reached out to him. We were really at that point just trying to get, you know, detectives sometimes take take files when they retire because for that book they're going to write or maybe uh, to continue working on this case as a private citizen. But so we were really at this point just trying to gather, um, you know, old documents. And I, I reached out to this detective who really was involved just um, a very short time on the task force. And he said, uh, his name was Herb Hogberg. And he said, oh, my son, Herb Jr., uh, is an FBI agent. He's doing some work on the case. And, you know, nearly fell off my chair and <laughs> texted <laughs> Stacy right away. And uh, she worked the phones and uh, we continued and, and we confirmed that, that there was an active investigation. So that was exciting. And uh, early on, we were able to get a list of one of the first meetings of the task force that listed every name. And it, the, the task force uh, that investigated Tylenol, uh, worked in teams of state police, FBI, and suburban cops. So we became obsessed, like Stacy said, with there was over 100 names, trying to find these people and uh, trying to find a woman because it was very difficult to find a, a female. Uh, I think there were maybe three in the entire task force, uh, a female FBI agent at the time or state police investigator. So yeah, it was it was like needle in a haystack many times, but Stacy and I both are... Um, we love a good mystery, and, and uh, we became obsessed with little details like finding photographs that uh, of a of a victim that had never been found before, and things like that. That's so cool because that sounds exactly like what I would have wanted to go to college for. Instead, I went to college for blurbs and 
listicles and <laughs> fun, great things like that nowadays. Uh, that this sounds like some. That was oh, I was going to say. This must have been an absolute dream for an investigative reporter, and then being financed by the Tribune to be able to do it. It's also incredible. It's, it's Stacy and I were kind of. She's a morning person and when I say morning we're talking like five in the morning gets up and runs and and I am a night owl I was a bartender and a waitress through college so uh so we kind of worked this almost 24 7 uh for 10 months and I'm, I'm not exaggerating <laughs> that's uh that's pretty wild and did you have uh you know along the way did you get any like extra special access to anything that may not have been shown to previous reporters yeah, um, really everything they've done since 2009 had never been shown to uh, previous reporters. And we got our hands on um, an FBI presentation uh, that they gave to prosecutors. And they told prosecutors, we have a chargeable circumstantial case and here's our best evidence in the case. And in we got one source to show it. And once one source showed it to us, another source showed it to us. So we got to kind of check ourselves that way too, right? So you're, you don't have wrong information. So yeah, that's. When, when one person tells you the same thing that the other person told you, you're like, gold. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's pretty impressive that you were able to um, to get access to that information, especially with the names uh, were these suspect names or were these just people that had been interviewed uh, along the way? So what we found out was in 2012, uh, there was a re so the task force one had investigated this in uh, 1982 and they, um, it remained unsolved all these years. And in 2006, uh, as the 25th anniversary approached, there was a reboot task force two and uh, they have, focused on one main suspect uh, this whole time, and that is James Lewis. And he is a former Missouri man who lived in Chicago under aliases because there was uh, uh, warrants out for his arrest in, in, in Kansas City for fraud. Uh, so he lived in Chicago for a very short time, he and his wife, and then three months before the Tylenol murders moved to um, New York. And he sent an extortion letter to Johnson and Johnson days uh, after the uh, murders. And um, his attorney admitted this when he went on trial for attempted extortion, that he was the letter writer saying, if you want to stop the killing, uh, wire $1 million to this bank account. And so he, he was never charged with the murders, but he was charged and convicted of attempted extortion and went to prison. So he is a man who has remained the top really the only suspect for the task force for the FBI all these decades. And he has played a catch me if you can cat and mouse game with law enforcement for years. And thus uh, really is the, the, the person that the, uh, the task force, the investigators presented this case to in 2012. We saw this uh, 50 page PowerPoint presentation. We saw undercover FBI video, uh, which um, is really, I think the, 
closest thing to a smoking gun they have on Mr. Lewis. Uh, but prosecutors did not charge, uh, did not make any movement in 2012. And there's been recent efforts with this 40th anniversary um, by investigators uh, to continue to try to convince prosecutors that they have a case that is circumstantial, but uh, chargeable and solid against James Lewis. I've done some research on this case as well, and James Lewis definitely is a, a character and definitely number one on my list, too. I mean, he sent, didn't he send diagrams from prison saying if this was what was going to happen, this is how it would be done? More than that, he called the FBI while awaiting his sentencing and the attempted extortion, and he offered to help solve the Tylenol murders. And that included drawing these very detailed diagrams. And uh, if you go to chicagotribune.com, we have all of them up there. We got them from the National Archives. Uh, you can take a look for yourself and, and decide, is, is this someone who knew what he was talking about or took a really good wild guess? He's a great artist. And <laughs> he, while he was, like Stacy said, while he was awaiting sentencing, he's, you know, contacted uh, an FBI agent and said, I'm not the killer, but I can help you figure out who the killer is. And thus began in uh, 1983, uh, like a half dozen meetings between him and an assistant U.S. attorney and a uh, state police investigator in which um, he drew these, was it uh, about seven different drawings, uh, uh, which uh, we reported a uh, poison expert um, has determined are feasible for the poisonings. And he also, there was a series of interviews. And in the interviews, uh, he said just bizarre things. Like uh, there was one uh, thing that stuck with Stacey and I where uh, the uh, FBI agent, Roy Lane, had asked James Lewis, why do you think the killer chose extra strength Tylenol? Do you think maybe it was to spare a child from being a random victim? And according to Lane, Lewis broke out laughing hysterically and said, no, don't you get it? There's something extra in the Tylenol, extra being the poison. So is that something that an innocent person would say? Perhaps, you know, if they're playing this game with law enforcement, if they're enjoying this dance. Uh, but that is one of several uh, pieces of this puzzle that has kept law enforcement on James Lewis's trail all these years. He doesn't seem like the person that wants to give up playing this game. You know, he's not one of those people that like ran away and said, I'm not involved. Don't bother me. Like he continues to put himself in, in, in there. And we all know anybody who knows true crime suspects and, you know, perpetrators love to be involved with the investigation and know where the investigation's going. And, you know, I don't know if it's a hero complex or what, but it's, uh, it's interesting because, you know, why would you continue to do that if you had no reason to, I don't know. It's, it, it, it's really a defense attorney's biggest nightmare, right? That you have this client that keeps talking and, and we know that he's, he's spoken with, uh, authorities as recently as last month, the uh, Illinois investigators flew to Boston and he spoke with them for hours without an attorney present. So he, 
we, we not, I don't I don't think we ever found an instance, maybe a couple, where he didn't talk, Chris, where he had the opportunity and, and declined to, to speak. Tell tell him about the sting. You tell it better than me. <laughs> and the in the video. Yeah, the sting video. The the sting video. Um, I don't know how much we should give away. Um, <laughs> be as coy as you want to be. Just the the sting itself, because it was his willingness to to want to yeah. dance that got him. Yeah. So the sting itself um, in in two thousand six. Um, try to condense this. A journalist came to the F- a Chicago journalist came to the FBI, not Christie or I, and uh, he said, I, "I think I figured out who the killer is, and it's not James Lewis, and it's not Roger Arnold, who was another primary suspect um, in the case." And he said, "It's someone completely different." So the FBI was the FBI, especially in charge of the Chicago office, was like, "I'm very interested in hearing this," and he called up. Um, Roy Lane Jr., who is a retired FBI agent, um, very sort of a legendary FBI agent in the Chicago area, and for his runout of corruption. And Roy comes in and, and, and Lane listens to this pitch, and the journalist leaves, and the special agent in charge says, Well, what do you think, Roy? And he says, eh, It's a good story, but I don't think we know who it is, according to Roy. You know, we just haven't arrested him. And they come up with this plan to, to re-engage with Lewis. And what they do is they have Roy call, reach out to Jim, Jim, Jim Lewis and say, hey, I'm working with a journalist. And this journalist says they found, they figure out who the killer is. It's not you. Would you be able to, would you be willing to help her solve the crime, you know, solve it and, and for her book? And, and of course, Jim Lewis agrees and he starts he starts working with this journal you know this journalist who's not the journalist who originally brought the idea to the fbi it's an undercover agent who's going by the name of sherry nichols and as roy is just chatting up and questioning lewis and locking him into statements sherry's recording the whole thing and this is the sort of sting operation they used against him in 2006 that led to them raiding his home in, in 2009 and ultimately re- led to the FBI saying we have a chargeable circumstantial case. So that leads me to believe that they think that he obviously is the guy that did it, but doesn't that also bring up the conundrum of the timing of his moving to Chicago or moving from Chicago and then the placement of the cyanide and and from what I had seen is that the cyanide would have eaten through the capsules within a certain amount of time. Is that still a belief or has that been changed over time? Therein lies the problem for investigators who are trying to convince prosecutors to charge James Lewis with the poisonings. They cannot prove that he was in Chicago during this Uh, basically 72-hour window that they think that the um, pills were uh, salted with the cyanide. So you've got to remember, um, part of it is remember what the world was like in 1982. It was 
there was some identity theft, but it was a more innocent time. You could, um, if you paid cash, you could get on a train or a bus and even a plane without a driver's license. So it was much easier uh, to get around and without, you know, if you wanted to be unnoticed. So what the task force did at the time in 1982 was uh, they searched after Lewis's name was revealed from the extortion letter, they searched, um, they looked high and low records of um, rental cars and bus companies and trains and planes, you know, airlines, and they have never been able to place James Lewis back in Chicago uh, during uh, the pivotal time that they believe that the, that the pills were tainted. So, um, you know, they, they, one of the things they point to is Lewis didn't just send an extortion letter to Johnson Johnson. He also sent somewhat of an extortion letter to the White House, Ronald Reagan in 1982, and said, if you raise taxes, you know, um, have you heard about those uh, poisonings in Chicago? Um, there's going to be more of them, uh, something along those lines. And he cited how he had access, he owned a travel agency, which wasn't, uh, wasn't true, but that he had access uh, to tickets and could fly all around um, the country uh, undetected. So they have cited that letter that he pinned uh, as, you know, part of their evidence as to um, to try to get around the fact that they can't place them in Chicago. Wow. Yeah, that would be a issue. But the thing is, it's just insane that you can get on a plane, pay cash, and fly, you know, to and fro <laughs> without anybody knowing that. Uh, I guess back then it just would have been, I mean, he wasn't in Chicago very long, like you mentioned before. So it's not like he showed up and everybody be like, oh, hey, Jimmy, Lewis, you're welcome, welcome back. Hey, you know, like he, you know, even if he was there for 24 hours, I mean, he could have easily done that um, inconspicuously. And the fact that you can just travel around the country just paying cash at hotels and getting in a car and paying cash at gas stations. I mean, there are a myriad of ways that he could have facilitated this. Do they have any, like anybody that says he was here on this day in Boston? New York. New York. Okay, I'm sorry. He's in Boston. To New York. Now. He's in Boston now. Yeah. Okay. Apologize. After he served his his sentence uh, for the attempted extortion, he joined his wife in Boston. Right. No, they don't have anyone who can place him in Chicago at the time. They have. I think the best they have is uh, a former coworker of his wife's and. Uh, someone else um, in New York who recalls seeing him with a backpack, maybe near a train station. <laughs> so not, not exactly conclusive evidence, uh, but um, that, that therein lies the reason why uh, the main hurdle that they've had all these years. And there is a second main suspect that uh, we explored in our podcast as well, uh, a man named Roger Arnold. Right. His connection is, isn't as crazy you know he's not as um i'm out wanting to help you guys solve this case type of thing you know he's probably more of the I don't he, know. he did not keep interjecting himself yeah into that's what i getting at <laughs> once he realized how deep he was in and how serious the investigation was into him he did what what 
most people do, and that is he got himself a lawyer and he shut up. Um, American yeah. way. It, it is the American. It is the American way, and it was turned out to be the smart thing for him to do. Um, yeah, Roger Arnold was um, a suspect in the in the case. Um, Chicago police had um, jurisdiction over one of the homicides uh, of the seven. And they sort of bifurcated themselves very, very early on from the main task force. And they um, kind of had their own little task force going. And they got a tip from a local bartender about a patron who had been acting erratic and talked about possessing cyanide. So he, um, he then um, was taken in, questioned, got some... They, searched his home. They found beakers and um, a handbook, a, a 007 license to kill kind of handbook. Poor man's James Bond, I think it was called. And it had a recipe in there on how to make potassium cyanide. And he had um, some weapons. So they, they jammed him up on weapons charges, and which were, which were misdemeanors. And they, they let him go. And he had lawyered up. So Really, they didn't dig too much further into him, but the damage from Roger Arnold's perspective had been done. His name had been national news. Um, he said that he had um, trouble working. His coworkers no longer liked him, things like that. And um, he said teenagers threw garbage at his house. And so several months later in June of 1983, he decides he's had enough of this. He's at a bar in Chicago and he's told, hey, Marty Sinclair, the bartender who dropped a dime on you to police, he's here. So Arnold leaves the bar for a little bit, comes back. He says he's carrying a gun for his own protection. Um, but it, it turns out that he approaches the man he believes is Marty Sinclair he yells, Marty, did you turn me in? And then he fires a shot and fatally kills the man. But that man was not Marty Sinclair. That man was John Stanishaw, a computer programmer with, with three daughters and Innocent. a bright future. And it's, it's a case of mistaken identity. And, it, and you know, Christy has often referred to John Stanishaw as, as the eighth victim of the Tylenol killings. And I think that's, that's absolutely true. It's just that's, such a heartbreaking story. I would agree with that statement. I mean, awful, just awful. We interviewed John Stanishaw's uh, youngest daughter, Lori Edling. She's on the podcast. And uh, one of the interesting parts of this reporting journey for Stacy and I was that um, many times we were able to connect people uh, through um, through our interviewing and help them find answers for themselves. Uh, for example, you know, two old police detectives who had been partners years ago, decades ago, who had lost touch were now reconnected because we were interviewing them. And in Lori's case, uh, 
she always wondered about the man that was the intended target. The man's name was Marty Sinclair. He was the bar owner who dropped a dime on Roger Arnold. And um, she was just like a 16-year-old girl when her dad was fatally shot. And she, you know, Catholic family, Chicago Catholic family. And uh, she recalls uh, sitting in the pew of her father's funeral. And her, her father... Um, was heavy set, and uh, Mr. Sinclair was heavy set, and they were bearded, and both bearded men, and they looked a lot alike. And Lori recalls looking up and seeing a man at the end of the communion uh, line uh, to get mass, uh, and she remembers just being startled at how much he looked like her father. And um, she told the story, and Stacy and I both got shivers, and we were like, you know, wow, this man came, you know the. The, the emotions he must have felt that bullet was meant for him and instead it killed a man who had three little daughters and he came to the services and Lori always wanted him to know that her family didn't blame him that her father would have done the same thing he would have called police too there were seven dead people from this horrible poisoning the, the nation was terrified a little girl died and her father would have absolutely called and uh, given police the same tip so she wanted him to know that but she'd never met him the two families had you know never met and we reached out to Mr. Sinclair uh, who was elderly and in poor health um, but through his son uh, we were able to share Lori's um, Lori wanted them to have her number and and to let them know that the family never blamed him and this uh, had weighed on her father's heart all these years and, and it meant a lot to both of them to connect them we have several of those kind of stories um, that just really uh, it's very gratifying for us both. Yeah, and that being said, you know, we've been talking for almost 40 minutes and we really haven't gone over the actual 24 to 72 hours of terror that this really basically paralyzed the city because it was pretty yeah. quick. Could you guys give me a little breakdown? Because, I mean, I know everybody knows the story, but it is always important just to circle back and just to get an idea of uh, who the victims were and how many people from one particular family were actually impacted? Sure. So the story begins at 6.15 a.m. on September 29th when 12-year-old Mary Kellerman wakes up um, and tells her parents she's not feeling well. Her dad tells her she can stay home from school. He and he goes downstairs to call the bus to say she's not going to be on it. And he hears a thump in the bathroom and he goes up and opens the door and finds his daughter lying on the ground. Uh, her breathing is, is shallow and her eyes are fixed and dilated. It's like she's being suffocated by some kind of invisible force. Um, he calls the, the ambulance, they take her to the hospital. Um, they put in a pacemaker and, you know, try to, try to get her stable again they can't and she she dies um before 10 a.m that morning she's pronounced dead and and they assume it's a heart attack which is very rare um, for a child and and it didn't make sense but um as the community is making sense of that eight miles away in Arlington Heights Christy can kind of take it from from there so later that afternoon same day um, 
a man named Adam Janus. He was uh, 27 years old, and he was lived in Arlington Heights with his two little kids, a boy and a girl, and his wife, Teresa, and he was a postal supervisor. He had the day off. He had been dealing with some aches and pains, but he was feeling uh, a little better that day. So um, he, his wife described him being so happy that day. He was just in a really good mood and uh, playing with their son in the kitchen. And then they ran some errands. Um, he uh, picked up uh, his preschool-aged daughter from her Catholic school, and they, you know, they went to the grocery store. He picked up some fresh-cut lilies for his wife and a bottle of Tylenol and came home and uh, took the Tylenol and said he, uh, he came out of the bathroom clutching his chest and um, basically collapsed. And his wife, um, in shock, saw some neighbors outside. One of them is a nurse and ran out for help. And um, Adam was taken to uh, a nearby hospital and pronounced dead. Uh, he had the same symptoms that little Mary Kellerman had with the, the dilated fixed eyes. And um, there was really uh, not much they could do for him. And the um, doctor uh, was a well-regarded, uh, uh, renowned doctor named Thomas Kim at the hospital who had worked on Adam Janus. And he uh, had the uh, unfortunate task of telling Adam's family uh, you know, that he had died. And uh, it was a Polish family, Polish immigrant family, and uh, he did most of his communicating, Dr. Kim, with Adam's younger brother, Stanley, who was 25. Stanley had just gotten married to his 20-year-old bride, Terry, um, months earlier that summer, and had just gotten back from their honeymoon in Hawaii. So obviously the family is very distraught, and they um, go back to uh, Adam's home to comfort his widow and also um, to make arrangements, you know, funeral arrangements and figure out the insurance and uh, perhaps uh, headaches born from the day's grief. Uh, take some uh, Stanley took some Tylenol and Terry took some Tylenol as well and uh, both suffered the same end that uh, Adam had hours earlier. They called the paramedics back to the Janice house for the second time that day. And it's the same crew. And there's a, a fire lieutenant and is in charge of the, the station that gets the call. And he says, second time in one day, we're all going. Firefighters, paramedics, the whole company is headed over there. So they get there. And when the lieutenant walks in, his paramedic looks up, is treating Stanley and looks up at him and says, Lieutenant, it's the same thing that happened this morning. And we lost the guy this morning. And at this point, Teresa Janice is still upright. She's watching the paramedics treat her husband. She's calling out his name over and over again. And she's holding on to Fire Lieutenant Chuck Kramer. Um, and then she collapses to the floor. He assumes she's fainted. He turns to roll her over and instantly sees that her eyes are fixed and dilated which to any firefighter paramedic is the sign of death. And he turns to his company and says, guys, we're not dealing with heart attacks here. But he doesn't know what they're dealing with, right? He thinks it could be environmental. He thinks there could be some kind of like, you know, virus floating around the house, killing everybody. So he takes everybody. They, they put Stanley and Teresa into the, into the ambulances and he takes 
the rest of the family who's there um, and the first responders. And he says, we're all going to the hospital. We're all going to be quarantined because I don't know what's going on here. So they all get to the hospital and they're, they're working on Stanley and Terry, but everybody else is quarantined. Chuck Kramer doesn't know who's going to die next. Joe Janice said he was looking at his family thinking who's going to die next. And they're all so confused as to, to what's going on. And Chuck calls uh, his friend, Helen Jensen, who's the public health nurse in Arlington Heights. And Helen's at home and she's making dinner. And he says, Helen, I need you here. And Helen rushes right over, walks into that, that room and sees Adam's widow, who's also named Teresa, standing by herself in a corner. And she says, I want to talk to her. She goes and talks to her with, through the help of a family member translating. She walks, Helen, Teresa Janice walks Helen through the day. And the only thing connecting all three people in the family is this bottle of Tylenol. So Helen tells the cops, I want to go to that house. She gets the key from Teresa Janice. She goes to the house. She finds the bottle of Tylenol. It's a 50 count bottle. She pours it out on the table. It counts. There's 44 capsules. So she does the quick math. You know, six capsules are not there. Three people taking the prescribed, you know, two capsule dose. She decides it has to be the Tylenol. So she, she brings it back to the, to the hospital. And they don't believe her. She presents it to a medical examiner, an assistant uh, medical examiner from Cook County who's there. And uh, he just kind of blows her off. And she <laughs> said she stamped her foot. She's sitting there in her summer t-shirt. Uh, well, it's fall, but it was a warm day. Summer t-shirt and uh, shorts and uh, said that she was just basically dismissed. So she went home and uh, poured herself a glass of scotch and cried to her husband um, because she was certain that it that it was the Tylenol. Um, meanwhile, Dr. Kim is trying to figure out what has happened. So now he's got three young people uh, who were healthy, uh, 20, 25, and 27, uh, when they woke up that morning. Two are now deceased, and one is uh, Terry, who's kept alive on life support. But she really, um, there wasn't much... Uh, hope for survival. And he's trying to figure out what's going on. So he's calling poison centers around the country. He's pulling out his old medical books, pacing back and forth. Um, you know, uh, they had ruled out that it was some sort of an environmental problem by this point, And they were really focusing on uh, poisons. And um, Dr. Kim, uh, at that time, you know, how many hours was this from the time the first victim that they started to piece this thing together? Like when he's going through the books right now, when he's like trying to figure out what this poison could be. How how many hours went by? It's, it's around nine, nine to ten o'clock at night at this point. And so, you know, Mary Kellerman, six, Mary Kellerman, the call to her house was at 6.15 a.m. So, I mean... It, it's under 24 every hours. minute counts wow oh yeah i mean and, and there were there were a few things that came together for example it wasn't common for doctors to order screenings and uh for uh, potassium cyanide at the time but uh dr kim had their uh blood tested uh, uh at a lab 
uh, without like uh, he's put it in a, uh, sent it in a cab <laughs> to have it tested in the uh, wee hours of the night. And then also, uh, Stacy, I told you about a fire name named Chuck, a uh, fireman named Chuck Kramer, uh, and he had had a conversation with uh, a firefighter friend of his from a neighboring town, and um, they put together the situation with Mary Kellerman and the Janices. And so the Kellerman brought bottle of Tylenol was brought to the hospital, and uh, that was ended up being tested at the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office. So over the course of, I think Dr. Kim got his results back by 1 a.m., and then the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office uh, tested the uh, tainted uh, pills from the two bottles, and they got the results uh, that evening. So by the morning, um, there was a press conference. When was it, Stacey, 9 a.m.? The press conference was at 9 a.m., but a reporter named John Flynn Rooney broke the story in Chicago at 5.30 in the morning. And so less than 24 hours after Mary Kellerman takes her first Tylenol, kicking off this tragic series of, of events, the medical and first responder communities have solved the medical mystery. They know that the Tylenol is poisoned and they get the word out there and there is no doubt that these people saved lives. Thank you so much to Christy and Stacy of the Chicago Tribune for joining me this week on Who Killed to discuss the Chicago Tylenol murders and their podcast, Unsealed. You can find their podcast wherever you get your favorite shows, as well as Who Killed, where I drop new episodes every Friday. And again, if you guys are interested in checking out their stuff on the Tribune, they do provide the link. It is uh, Chicago Tribune slash Tylenol Murders. And that is, uh, of course, chicagotribune.com slash Tylenol Murders. And if you guys would like to uh, support the show, you could do so by the Venmo app using my username with at Bill-Huffman-3. And again, every contribution does help keep this show on the air. So I appreciate everything and everything that you guys do as far as listening and supporting the show. Part two of this great conversation with these incredible investigative reporters will air next Friday. And we will wrap up our conversation about the unsolved Chicago Tylenol murder case. So... If you have any information, please feel free to reach out to the Chicago FBI or just call 1-800-CALL-FBI. Again, as always, until next week, stay healthy and be safe. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. You can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com.
24 hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. <laughs> 